I suppose one might begin by saying that the Pearl Fishers uh, has everything that a 19th century opera audience might have hoped for. An exotic location far away from the huffing, puffing world of a new industrial Europe, a kind of Garden of Eden. There's a location where you can imagine doing things that are utterly forbidden at home. There's the promise of love, or is it sex, that challenges social convention, and even better, profane love triumphing over the sacred variety when the priestess, Laila, decides to forego her vows and love Nadir. Then there's one of the most appealing, of course, of all tenor baritone duets. In, if you'll allow me to translate rather badly, the sacred heart of the temple for Nadia and his rival for Leila, Zorga, the newly elected headman of the Sri Lankan village where they live. Bizet was just 25 when he wrote The Pearl Fishers. He'd already won the prestigious Prix de Rome and was ready to make his mark on Paris music, but of course talent and opportunity don't always coincide, so that no wonder he jumped at an opportunity for a commission to write an opera for the Théâtre Lyrique, putting aside the work that he was then working on uh, for the more prestigious Opera Comique. The libretto was by Eugène Comon and Michel Carré, and the commission was offered in April 1863. Terrifyingly, the first night was going to be in September of that year, which really didn't leave Bizet much time. But burning the midnight oil, and often easily borrowing from earlier works, he managed to complete the score. So there's music from a projected opera he was writing, Ivan IV, as also from a rejected Te Deum. The audience for the first night on September 1863 were extraordinarily enthusiastic and enthusiastic enough to call the composer himself on stage. Alas, as so often, it was a different story the next morning and the following days. The critics had sharpened their knives. I always think the most unkind cut of all comes from Benjamin Jouvin in Le Figaro, who wrote, there were neither fishermen in the libretto nor pearls in the music. Well, the opera was given 18 performances, and then it disappeared, not to be revived for 11 years, and by then, Bizet himself was dead. Indeed, you could argue, I suppose, it would be another century, another 100 years, before Bizet's other opera finally entered the regular repertoire. Well, we have a quartet of guests for you this evening. We're going to be joined by Martin Fitzpatrick, who's prepared the English translation for Bizet's The Pearl Fishers, and who's head of music here at English National Opera, and Elizabeth Donovan, who is covering the role of Leila, and they'll be exploring the music of this opera. We're also joined by Mark Grimmer from 59 Productions, who is the video designer for Penny Wilcox's production. But first, we're joined by Richard Langham-Smith. He's a research professor at the Royal College of Music and a scholar in the field of French music. Um, and he's just brought out a new edition of Carmen with Peter's edition with material from the original staging. And he's also, I should tell you, contributed an essay and a complete translation of the libretto to the new ENO Opera Guide series, the Overture Opera Guides. Uh, I cannot commend these guides too highly. They're also astonishingly good value. 12 pounds for Carmen. That won't get you more than two pints of beer or a taxi home or halfway home, depending on where you live. Anyway, would you please welcome Richard Langham-Smith. Richard, um, 
let's start with a very general question. What is the fascination of the Far East, uh, in this case Ceylon rather than Sri Lanka, uh, in the middle of the 19th century? Well, it's all a part of exoticism. Anything that wasn't France was interesting to the French. I have a book called Exotisme en France, chapter one, the English. <laughs> and so anything, this, was, this opera was originally going to be set in Mexico. So anything far away with uh, a people with different uh, customs and so on was uh, fodder for novels, for paintings. Scotland was particularly important. And the East had been captured by painters such as Chasserot, Ingres de la Croix, and novels by Lotti, uh, Gautier were very fashionable. But we, we have to put our minds back. How could you experience these countries uh, at that time? You could look at a picture, but you couldn't see reproductions of them. They had to be engraved. They were black and white. The best place was on the stage. And even better was if you had some music to go with it. So but you've said, you've said a lot already, which is that it is to do with this, uh, these uh, cultures that saw love in a different way. I mean, one of the, one of the types of thing is, is the harems. Uh, and the big grand-scale operas of Massenet and even back to the, the Trojans of Berlioz, which is perhaps where the Eastern music began. And another thing was to have a clash between visitors going to a place, and you see them, uh, the, the clash of cultures actually on stage. Lacme by Delib is like that, which has a character called Gerald. And Fra Diavolo, who has Pamela and Lord Coburn. And, and uh, uh, originally, the Pearl Fishers wasn't one of these. But because it's in English, it works very well to have the three men actually, I'm giving a bit away if you haven't seen it, but to have them in Western costume as sort of colonialists. I should tell you, if you look at the screen to our left, you can see images from Penny Wilcox's production as we talk. Richard, is it also a part of that other uh, cultural political uh, activity at this time, which is the so-called scramble for empire, this desire by the European countries to acquire colonies to somehow prove, as it were, their worth as nation states. Yes, absolutely. And I think the French and the English had a certain rivalry in this. It does say the first line, actually, of the stage directions in the Pêcheur de Perles is Ceylon before the English arrived. <laughs> and so uh, it, even by not having that, uh, it is, in a sense, touching upon colonialism. How exactly did the commission come about? Because it's a rather curious commission. It doesn't come from either of the two grand houses in Paris. No, but it comes from the very, very important third. Because the two grand houses, the opera was really a closed book and it did big things in five acts and it had a ballet and it didn't matter what the opera was about, the girls in tutus came in in act four. The opera comique didn't have enough room because it had a repertoire which went on and anyway it was described as a marriage bureau and it uh, had all these pieces but no room for the young French composers. So Carvalho, who set up really, who was active at the opera com at the Théâtre Lyrique, which was a sort of third house between the two, um, had commissioned this. It was really, it got going about 1851. And so it was a, it was a third house, but I'd say it was equally, if not more important, because it commissioned so many contemporary pieces. And, and the commission is directly linked to the fact that Bizet was a winner of the, um, the Prix de Rome. 
Well, he'd written a few operas before, and um, he, he was really a very, very promising young composer at this time, only 25, but he was dead by 31, 30. Is, um, is, I mean, I think it's very important also that this business of what an opera comique is, because it can be a comic opera, but really, opera comique comes from the word comédien, which is an actor. And so the, uh, the Pêcheur de Pearl was originally written as an opera comique to go on in the Théâtre Lyrique. And so it would have had a lot of spoken dialogue. And it was very short time before the premiere that Carvalho probably, it was he who decided, no, make it a proper opera, put it all in music. And so you do get, all you can see where Bizet has suddenly put the bits that he would have um, uh, uh, had in spoken dialogue, he sets them to sort of restative. And I think it's a great pity that he did. Richard, um, is the libretto, and we shouldn't give away the final twist for those who may not have ever seen Pearlfishers before, <laughs> is the libretto quite as bad as many have suggested? I mean, it's said that Carvalho turned to Carré, one of the authors, and said he should have burnt it. Well, I don't believe that because he, uh, Cavallo later became, after Bizet's death, the director of the Opera Comique, and he put on the Pêcheur de Perle at that. And uh, before, that was, I think, in the 1890s, in the, when it was revived, it was done in dozens of cities outside France. So the idea that it was a great flop is really not true at all. And what does Bizet himself, as a composer, bring to this piece? Well, um, he brings exoticism. You do hear all the way through. A, I mean, some of you probably listen to the Archers, and you hear on that the fake, all-purpose West Country accent. Um, it doesn't really exist anywhere. And similarly, Bizet's music is a sort of all-purpose exoticism. All you do, he got from somewhere, probably Felicien David, who's a crazy composer who went out east, collected mel uh, melodies, uh, wrote in funny mode, and went in the search of a female Jesus. But um, he had several operas done, one of which has just been recorded, Lala Rook, and you hear in that um, these scales always with drum beats that go da, 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 and with a lot of metallic percussion, which sort of mirrors the costumes where all the people have glinting earrings and uh, necklaces and all that kind of thing. It's marvellous oriental kitsch. But it's also entirely urban, western invented. This is, there is no attempt at this point to try and find authentic music to incorporate. No, except that he, there's no doubt, Bizet was quite a, a library boy and he went in and you know, clearly got out some of the collections of oriental music, probably looked at the scores of Felicien David and imitated the modes and the way that these pieces were done. Just as later, he went into the library and did an enormous amount of research for the real sort of exotic specific piece, which was Carmen where he, he noted down all the dances and the rhythms and that kind of thing. The, the astonishing thing always for, I suppose, audiences is just how sure-footed Carmen is dramatically in the form that we, we know it. Um, this is, cannot really be said of, of Pearl Fisher's candidate. It is a young man's opera. No. Well, there, wasn't, uh, there was nothing else for Bisset. He was a young man, then he's, um, he dropped off the perch. So, I mean, he, he really... Uh, I think it's a strength, not a weakness, that he was a young man. I mean, uh, often people... The, the criticism says, oh, that nice aria comes too early. 
And I think that that's not true at all, because the, it is rather adventurous concept of an opera that you have the duet between the two which bonds them. You can't say it's a love theme, it's got a bit of brotherly love in it as well and these two things and the interesting thing, it's not just a tune it's a two part thing that, that comes in, in sort of counterpoint with implied harmonies and that's what comes back at the end. I think it's very clever and it's not a, it's not a motive and then after that has happened, this duet of bonding, you see these men growing up trying to be faithful to their vows, but actually love and, um, as I think you mentioned the word sex, uh, are pretty strong forces. Why does the piece fall out of the repertoire so, so clearly? Well, it didn't really. I mean, it, was, it, it had a life quite a long time through the 20th century. It might have fallen out of the repertoire in England, but it, it has a sort of trickle uh, all the way through. Gedda, there were many famous tenors who actually uh, took the roles. What, what also happens, we think, in, in, the, in 1886, is the autograph score disappears, therefore making it um, uh, a difficult problem to try to reassemble. Um, is this as difficult as we suppose, or is there something to be said for not having an autograph score? Oh, having edited Carmen, it would have been absolute bliss not to have an autograph score of Bizet. Uh, well, it's, it's lacking the first 45 pages. I don't want to go on about Carmen because it was used as a conducting score and the first 45 pages deteriorated by the conductors so much. But then you have to deal with all kinds of little problems of things that don't quite fit. I mean, for me, one of the great sources for uh, editing an opera is actually the orchestral parts because then you know what's going on. If there's a wrong note, the violin scrub it out. Uh, if there's a horn part, the, um, uh, the, the brass players do, well, on the common parts, they do crosswords with rather rude words, and they calculate how much money they're earning at the, on, on the right, and they may do a caricature of the conductor. But at least they're marked up, and you know what's going on. The, the autograph score is very often something that lies beside and is not actually used for the performance. Richard Langsmith, thank you very much indeed. And Richard, do stay with us. Our next guest is Mark Grimmer, who's the creative director of 59 Productions, who have worked on the design for Penny Wilcox production. If you saw English National Opera's production of Nico Muller's Two Boys here at the Coliseum in 2011, or indeed John Adams' opera, Dr. Atomic, you'll recall the remarkable contributions that Mark Grimmer and 59 Video brought to these two shows. Will you please now welcome Mark Grimmer? Mark, what was the original brief that you were given for the show? The short answer is um, water. Um, there was a desire to um, to bring some life to the stage and to find ways of the ways of bringing the the, the character of the ocean uh, onto the stage. Uh, in collaboration with the, the choreographer and, and the other members of the creative team, but to, to, to give the audience a few visual treats that only really video projection and animation can, can bring to the stage and to, um, I, I think, to inject a little more visual life into it and to, and to, give, uh, to give some sort of spectacular moments in a way. 
Penny Wilcock is, of course, a, 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 a filmmaker. And I wonder if it's, if it's easier, perhaps, working with a, a filmmaker who has a kind of instinctive understanding of this visual vocabulary. It's, it's always a particular challenge. And we, we've worked with, um, with numerous filmmakers uh, on operas. And it's, it's sort of the best, the best and worst of worlds, in a way, because their, their, their imaginations are very, very uh, visually sharp. Uh, they're obviously very sort of well versed with with visual storytelling, um, but equally the the process of making uh, a work for the stage and particularly an opera is 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 very different from making a work for the screen. Uh, the editorial processes and the editorial decisions that you make are very different, um, and actually it's, it's its own kind of peculiar beast. The use of video projection and film and animation on stage because you create content on a screen, so in our studio, our, our team of animators are working on a, on a screen basis. But then we get into the theatre, and all of a sudden, that material is translated into three dimensions, and it doesn't play out like, in the way that a normal film would. So um, there's, there's sometimes, re-education is too strong a way to put it, but it, it, quite often part of our job is to open up the director's imagination to ways of using filmic components, but in, in a way that they might not have done in the cinema. And is there ever enough time for what you want to do? No. And if, if Mr. Berry is listening, I would plead for more uh, every time. We, the, the problem, I mean, we always get away with it. So the show always goes on. Uh, so in that sense, I suppose there is always enough time. But, um, the, you know, the, the mode of rehearsing and making operas is, is uh, you know, in some ways still stuck in the past from days when we were talking about painted, cut, painted backdrops and cut cloth scenery that could be hoisted up and that was your that was your set, and and as sets and and, and scenography gets more sophisticated and more technologically advanced, um, the the amount of time required to rehearse hasn't really expanded to accommodate that. So we all just have to work around the clock instead. That's there is a real sense in which you and and the skills that you represent have now become an essential part, maybe, of opera production, and and and, and a kind of equal of of the traditional um, set makers and, and an equal of the of the of the conductor and the pit and so forth well, and I the mean, director. I, I, I'm not. I, well, it's it's always difficult, isn't it? Because there is there's a sort of a great trend for the use of technology on stage, and uh, you know quite often it's used very badly. Um, and there is a sort of a temptation to try something new just because you can. Um, I think that what we do with with the use of video projection and, and animation on stage is it, it, it's an equal of of other parts of the scenographic process, uh, and in that sense, it's it's like. You know, it's like lighting design or, or choreography or, or, or set design. There are moments when you need to know when to push your craft forward, when to sit back and let somebody else take the spotlight. And, and it's, it's, it's a collaborative process which requires sensitivity and, and resisting the urge to do something just because you can, and quite often less is more. It's perhaps a rare opportunity to get a chance to come back and, and not only work on a revival, but rethink some of the things that you originally did. What have you rethought for this revival? We, I mean, it's always great to come back because you never quite have enough time the first time around. And you, you sort of, you know, you leave after the elation of the opening night with a long list of things in your head that you really wish that you managed to get right the first time. So for us, it was really about tidying up things that we thought that we could improve. We knew that the overture section worked particularly well uh, and so we wanted to try and find a, an opportunity to, to to have a bit of a reprise of that material um, and then you know in, in act three there's a, there's a sort of complete redesign of, of Zerga's sort of tented world um, so we had to come up with a new approach to, to, to that set 
And yeah, we, we, it was a case of, of, of sort of embellishing the, 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 the uh, techniques that had worked well and, um, and learning from what we'd done last time, really. Has the extraordinary image of the rolling ocean changed that's, too? That's changed. So the, there's more of that. We, we wanted to try and bring the, the, the projected world of the sea and the, the, there's a, uh, the use of silk as a puppeted ocean on stage. We wanted to bring those two things more closely together um, and to try not to make the visual material feel cinematic but to make it kind of in concert with the other, with the other visual elements. This is a terribly naive question, but those rolling waves, do they exist in some ocean somewhere or are they entirely the product of, well, of, digi of the digital world? They are... Um, they were, we made those from scratch. Um, so they're made using a programme called Maya when you, you can simulate waveforms and you can you can adjust the the, the frequency and, and wave height, uh, and we needed that kind of flexibility because we wanted to be able to dictate the exact movement of the wave and the timing of its move. Um, but in order to give it a sense of kind of uh, photorealism, we combined it with some real water elements and some particle animation, and so it's it's, it's a it's a sort of mishmash really. So they are scored waves. They are so scored waves, and they, they, they go on cue. And it, actually, joking aside, one of the things about one of the reasons that animation is such a useful tool um, compared with using, say, photo real material is that you can make the wave advance at the right moment, and you can. I mean, the, the, all the material is cued by the, the stage manager on particular notes in the score. So it's it's you know it's it's not an accident. There's that wonderful story about the Lumiere brothers showing their first short films in which, in one of the short films, the tide rolls in and the audience stuck. I have to tell you, at the dress rehearsal, I didn't think I was going to duck this Good. time. We were, we were hoping for a slightly kind of uh, a consuming moment with this sort of tsunami-like wave coming towards the audience. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Grimmer, thank you very much Thanks. indeed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, now, Music Ho. We're joined by Marty Fitzpatrick, who prepared the English translation for this edition of Bizet's The Pearlfishers, and is chorus master for the production. And we're also joined by the soprano, Elizabeth Donovan, who is covering the role of Leila. Will you welcome them both, please? Lily, I'm afraid you have to, to talk for your supper before we allow you to sing. Okay. <laughs> who, who, as far as you're concerned, is Leila? Tell us as a character. She was a Brahmina who's been appointed to priestess, brought in to the community, appointed by elders within the community, um, to perform religious rituals to protect the divers and uh, ward off danger. And is she entirely innocent? In this production, I've been led to believe, no, she's not. She has had a relationship with Nadia before. Um, but I think she's rather torn between, obviously, the community is dependent on her to, to protect them, but she's torn with all these feelings that have been reignited. Now, that's really interesting. So, in fact, the conflict is less between her, shall we say, loss of virtue, mm. um, than between her feelings that she must look after the community, but also she must listen to her heart. In other words, it, the individual versus the community. Yes, very much so. Um, and not, that's not a way you had you thought about that, that reading of the, of the opera? No, not at all, not at all. What kind of research do you find yourself doing for a part like this? Um, absolutely none for this role, I'm afraid. I came to it rather, um, rather late. Obviously, you get a lot from the libretto. 
and from the music itself. But my role as a cover is to make sure that the dots are in the right place. And if I go on, I have to be in the right place, not to throw everybody else. So it's very much I have to take on board what I see on stage and from the rehearsals that we get very, very quickly. It's, it's a huge thing if you do have to go on stage. How on earth do you pace yourself through it? It's actually written very nicely for a soprano. It starts off very florid, very gentle, and then gradually it becomes more lyric. It stretches, and then by act three, I suppose you always have to keep act three in your mind. That's the most dramatic part of the opera. And um, that's where it's all guns blazing. And yes, that's always keep act three in mind. And are there some nasty corners that you look forward to or don't look forward to as, as the evening progresses? Um, no, I think once I've got the first bit over for me, the florid passage, I, quite, I can relax after that. I think it depends on what kind of soprano you are. I'm always a bit terrified by anything that's a bit runny. Um, but if it's got a nice lyrical line, I'm quite happy. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you going to sing for us? What, what um, I'm going to sing Layla's second aria from Act Two. She's just performed um, her, what, her first rituals and has been given the rest of the night off by Nurabad. She knows Nadia's there and in some ways that's bringing great comfort to her. Great, thank you very much.
Elizabeth and Martin, thank you both very much indeed. Um, Martin, uh, as I've said, you also were the translator of, the, 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 uh, of, the, of this. What, what are the issues that, that face you turning this libretto into English? Uh, it's my first one in French, and I, I've found um, that's a challenge because the French uh, like to bend the language in the way that the Italians and the Germans don't. So, for example, in, in that last um, aria, in, in the French, uh, he has... Uh, Caché sous la feuillage épais. Um, uh, and one time he goes, Caché sous la feuillage épais. And then the second time he goes, Caché sous le feuillage. So he has the stress on feuillage one time, and then he, the next time he has it on feuillage. So, and it's a, it's a very French thing. Um, so it, it's a, um, either one gives it a completely different translation for the second time. Or what I've tried to do um, is have something where, where you can bend the English both ways down. So, so where they've got one word, which is feuillage, I've got dark veil. So, so one time it's, it keeps watch through a dark veil of trees, and the other time it's through a dark veil of trees. To, so these are the sort of issues that are particular to, to the French repertoire, because their, their, their approach to stresses in, in the language are, are, are peculiarly idiosyncratic. Apart from stresses, I mean, what about vowels and consonants? Are, are there difficulties there? Yes. I mean, the, the, the challenge um, with French is that they like these very weak final um, syllables. So um, uh, the, the, uh, there's a, a duet that Leila and uh, Nadia sing in Act 2, and, and in the, they, they have this uh, rhyme scheme, which is, Ton coeur n'a pas compris le mien au sein de la nuit parfumée Quand j'écoutais l'âme charmée, les accents de ta voix aimée. So, and, and it's this mere, it's, 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 there's, there's nothing to hang on. So, um, uh, I deliberately um, tried not to put constants and not to put, it, it, it's also terribly easy to make it sound like Gilbert and Sullivan if you're not careful. <laughs> um, if you're too clever, clever with the rhyme. So, it's about. It's about acknowledging without drawing attention, I would, I would say. So, so I, I've sort of half-rhymed things. So that night in the sweet-scented air, hearing your voice set my heart on fire, I was caught helpless in love's power. So they're, they're, they have that same uh, sort of semi-change semi of vowel about them. There's a, there's a diphthong rather than, rather than a, a, a specific second syllable. And, and so it's, it, it, that, it was a challenge. And I mean... Certainly, the number of final consonants, by definition, uh, um, in English, we have many more of them, and it's 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 about it's. Of course, one tries to one tries to acknowledge the open-ended nature of, of the French language. At the same time, it, the, the balance is: if I spend my whole life with day and free and the and me and way, and then then you're losing a lot of lovely words that might help you with English. So it's it's finding that balance between. I, I know it's a shame that I'm putting a consonant on the end of that, but that word is more useful to me than if I try and, and, and straightjacket myself into every time there is an open-ended uh, word in the French having an open-ended word in English. Because, of course, the other consideration must be that we in the audience should hear and immediately understand what's being sung. That's absolutely crucial. I mean, um, 
uh, like Mark, I have also modified my work since uh, since the premiere, and um, um, my brief was it became clear it's, it's only when one's with an audience you go they're not getting that you can smell the they're not I haven't been clear in my work um, so uh, I, I one of the things that I worked at this time was making the narrative clearer and making uh, and not getting so hidebound in 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 finding beautiful words, but actually telling the story more simply and more, hopefully more effectively. Richard has, has talked about the, the score, but what for you makes this score distinctive? What is it that is unmistakably well, appealing about Beezy? I, I mean, what Richard touched on is the exoticism, and what, what is breathtaking is, is um, Bizet's orchestration, I think, is, re is really fantastic, and, and the delicacy with which he marshals a large number of forces uh, in the orchestra. Uh, but there have been very little balance issues in this, and it, you know, it's, at times there's chamber music. The, 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 glo the glorious moment of, of, the, of the duet um, is sort of ushered in by a flute and a harp, and that's it, really. And, and then he slowly builds it up to this momentous climax. But he starts with very little, and and it's sort of the mastery that he has of the orchestration. I think is really where fantastic. does that come from? Has he been reading Berlioz? I mean, has he been looking at Berlioz's great book on orchestration? Well, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he has. But uh, I mean, I think it comes from his mind because uh, you know his his way of orchestrating is not Berlioz's. Uh, you know, fre uh, fresh from Benvenuto Cellini, I can say that. The it's a, it's, a, it's a different world that Bizet works, works in. And there is a sense in which, as you listen to this score, that um, you know there's a kind of sense, of, I was going to say there's leitmotifs, but there aren't so much there, but there are repeated musical phrases that allow you to identify where you are psychologically at every stage, aren't they? Yes, I mean, I, I think if there's one thing that, that he took into Carmen and later is, is what you say sort of, I mean, not dissimilar to sort of ide fix kind, kind of idea um, that Berlioz had developed where, where what is happening at this moment, we, we're just going, he just gives us a nudge into, into where we should be thinking. But, but it's subtle, it's certainly, we're not in leitmotif land or, or anything like that. But, but he, he's, just, he's just saying, remember that this is what, what is happening at this point. And, and he seems, throughout this piece, maybe, as, as, as Elizabeth really said, always to be considerate of his singers. Very considerate of his singers. Yeah, no, no, no. They're, they're, I mean, uh, the, the, the tenor role is a challenge, but it's, it's, it's a role that, that, that French tenors would have known. It has this very high, heady quality that, that go, goes back to Rameau and Lully and all, all of that, you know, so, uh, and car carries on in, into some, some of the, uh, the Mayabir and things like that. It's the very high-placed sound. So, so that's, that's absolutely a voice. We might not have it as much now, but it, it was standard, standard for that time. Martin, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time in hand. If you'd like to ask questions of any of our uh, four guests, please do. Um, put up your hand and there is the celebrated roving microphone about to rove and find that hand. Who would like to ask anything of our guests this evening? At the back. Can you tell us why there are such substantial changes in Act 3? Uh, you, mean, you mean production? Yes. Visually everything seems to be very different from my recollection. Well, I don't know whether you want to talk about some of the production thoughts. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know what necessarily... But that's a question for, for Penny and Dick, really. I mean, from, a, from 
my video projection world, we responded to those changes um, in, in Act 3 to the physical set. I think there was a feeling, I'm really guessing here, I think there was a feeling that um, we wanted more of a sense of place, um, something that chimed perhaps more effectively with the, the, the modern setting, um, and to suggest a, a sort of um, to suggest something of Zerga's power and, and Zerga's position of authority as a sort of as a, as a sort of uh, figurehead, and so the, the reference material that we looked at was at a lot of old uh, Indian record offices and, and uh, office buildings from from the Indian subcontinent, really. I mean, um, I, I th sorry, sorry. Go on, Martin. I, I think there, there was one thing that, that the brief that Penny was given was. Um, uh, was to make the exotic less exotic and make it uh, a world that we would recognise. And uh, as Richard um, gave away, you know, um, that Zorga has clearly been in the Western world. And and one of Penny's sort of concepts was was a character like Imran Khan, um, you know, some someone who had gone back to their to their home country and started up political form uh, based on on the experience that they had in the Western world. And so he's very much in, a, in Western garb with a hint of, of his, his own colors. Um, and so I think, I think that rather than the, the tent from Act 3, Scene 1 last time, what, what didn't really play to that strength. It, so that was what, what her, her brief and thought to, mm -hmm. to you and, and the design team was. And, and if I might add uh, my six, but, but I mean, how splendid to see an opera that is actually different um, uh, than from the first version. In a way, I feel I've seen two pearlfishes in a kind of way. Richard, you want to come back? I was just wondering whether you were referring to the different endings, because there are actually three endings that have been tried to the opera. One is mm. the one, the happy ending that we hear in this one. In another one, um, Zorga is put onto a, few, onto a pyre. And in another one, he's stabbed. <laughs> so you take your pick, really. I mean, they tried to do it with Carmen to make a happy ending at Covent Garden, but that didn't work. <laughs> do we have another question from anybody in the audience? Another question? Then all the... Yes, thank you. The microphone's on its way. I was going to ask you... When you were doing the water scene, did you actually go out to the water and experience the waves before you did that? <laughs> There's, um, there, are, there are two very different kinds of water that we, that we use. Last time around in 2010, we took Alfie Bow and we threw him in a swimming pool and filmed him <laughs> thrashing around underwater. Um, so Alfie experienced it, that's for sure. That's probably why I didn't come back this time. <laughs> no. Um, we, uh, and then the, second, the, the, the other underwater for, the, for the, the underwater sequence in Act... In, so in Act 1, in the, in the uh, overture, that's real water that we filmed um, last, last time around. In the Act 2 uh, sort of underwater swimming sequence, um, that was all animated, but we looked at a lot of references. Actually from the tsunami as well, we wanted to... Mm suggest that kind of natural threat which ties in with the sort of the prayers to keep the fishermen safe and <clears throat> the sort of menace and, and, and natural threat of the ocean so um, I didn't go swimming in the uh, in the sea but we did we did lots of lots of sort of trawling of, of um, news footage and nature footage to show that kind of the right kind of water and interplay between light and water yeah Mark can I ask you yeah um, 
was Hokusai the sea in your mind at all? Because I, I saw that. I saw some of that. In I mean, yeah, you can't really get away from, from no. that amazing image. It is an um, amazing image. Uh, that that sort of that Hok the thing about that Hokusai image is the um, the combination of beauty and terror, which yeah. I think is kind of with any of these questions about the natural world of you know tsunamis and earthquakes and and, and storms. Um, on the one hand, remind us of uh, how small we are in the world, but also, you know, can be devastating. You see mm -hmm. whole, whole mm -hmm. countries wiped out, you know, so that was, that was, that was in mind, yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what, going back to the question about the change thing, I think one of the things that, that, uh, that the company and Penny felt didn't quite work last time was this, this juxtaposition of the real world and the, the exoticism that Richard was talking about, the sort of 19th century, oh, anywhere foreign must be exciting kind of thing. And so, and so there, there was a search for something that was grounded more in, in, in reality, which whether it succeeds or not is, is another story. But we cer certainly that was, that was the brief that, that, that we, we gave Penny and she was very happy to, to take on board was, was, yes, you know, in order for this to work, we have to, the, the 19th century slightly chocolate box fantasy exoticism we needed to go further away from. Thank you. Um, some final notices. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is the last of this season's uh, pre-performance talks, but most of you, I suspect, are sitting on a little slip of paper that will give you details of what we shall be doing at the start of next season. And I do hope we shall welcome you all to these talks before uh, one of the performances. Um, uh, if you would like to have a drink, a refreshment, before this evening's performance, the bar down in the circle is now Dress circle, dress circle is now open. Uh, in the meantime, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being attentive and thoughtful uh, towards us. But our thanks, of course, are particularly to Richard Langham-Smith, Mark Grimmer, Elizabeth Donnerman, and Martin Fitzpatrick. Thank you all very much indeed.